Hello, and welcome to Hearth Talk. Today we're going to speak with John Goland, a hearth industry consultant and writer who has been in the industry since 1974. John has worn a lot of hats in that time, and in today's interview, uh, we'll go over a history of what he's been involved with. I think you'll enjoy this. Thanks for listening. Hello, John. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Craig. Uh, how's things up there in Canada? It's a beautiful sunny day. Okay, well, hey, I'm glad to finally get the time to talk to you. One of our members on the hearth.com forum actually has a signature that says, everything I learned about wood burning I learned from John Goland. Is he a friend of yours? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so you didn't make him do that? Not not so much as I know, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, you're one of those rare people in the uh, wood stove and hearth industry uh, being named a consultant and a writer. I mean, our industry really doesn't have many people in it that are uh, like you that actually do uh, research that doesn't, you know, always pertain to one stove company, uh, pertains to the the systems as a whole. And, and that's something I think our readers will find interesting, especially in some future interviews when we get into some details. But uh, for today, I want to start with uh, how this all started, where it started, uh, how you got your interest in wood burning, uh, your education, how you got into the field. So starting at the beginning, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, your your education and how that first led into uh, the beginning of your interest in wood burning. Well, my uh, my education is nothing much to talk about. I, uh, I, uh, I'm one of those people that didn't do all that well in school. Um, you know, I tried a bit of college, but I got distracted by other things. My first career, by the way, was as a motorcycle mechanic. <laughs> when I was going to college and during the summer, I was offered an apprenticeship as a motorcycle mechanic, and I took it. Ah, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. That's right. And I <laughs> left. I left college. I didn't go back to college. And uh, as I look back on it now. Doing that apprenticeship in motorcycle mechanics was the best thing I ever did in my life because it prepared me for everything I've done since, oddly enough. So I worked as a motorcycle mechanic for three or four years, uh, rising to service manager in one shop for a while. Uh, but then I got a little disillusioned, and this was back in 72 or so. I um, moved from Toronto, where I was living, to Killaloo, which is in you know central eastern Ontario, uh, about a hundred miles west of Ottawa, in a very remote uh, sort of what used to be farming community, but the soil was so lousy and rocky that uh, the farms went bust, and so the land was cheap. <laughs> and um, when I moved to Killaloo, I was living right in the bush in a very remote rural area. Uh, in we call the forest the bush because the forest is really yeah that's a, that's an australian term we, we call it the boonies you know <laughs> <laughs> well it, it, the, the term forest overstates the quality of what we have around us <laughs> gotcha gotcha so we call it the bush in any event of course it was it was standard procedure to heat with wood in this area and so that was my first introduction to wood stoves and having worked in a in a competition motorcycle shop for a period of time dealing with such things as 
fuel-air ratios, combustion, carburation, uh, complete combustion, incomplete combustion, heat transfer, all those things were very much part of my motorcycling career. Uh, When I first started running wood stoves, old cook stoves and old Ashley stoves, I was disgusted by the quality of combustion. I just thought it was appalling. And so, uh, in in a couple of stints back and forth between living in the Killaloo area and back working as a motorcycle mechanic to earn more money to come back, I built a wood stove of my own and began at that point, this would have been 1974 or so, um, learned about this sort of cause and effect relationship with wood combustion and how wood burned and how it burned better and so on. And so I built, you know, two or three wood stoves of various designs during that period. They were all very crummy in the mid-70s. And then in, in, a, in a desperation move in 1978, um, I applied for a job as a welder on the assembly line of a wood furnace factory. And um, because I was broke. So I started out as a welder on the assembly line, and it turned out that I was a terrible welder. <laughs> so... <laughs> After six weeks as a welder, I went in to see the owner of the company um, and said, um, you know, I, I should have got a raise up to the next level. I was making, I think, 450 an hour or something. And um, I said, I really should be uh, working in your engineering department because I've been building wood stoves for a period of time and thinking deeply about combustion issues and so on. I think I can be of more use in your engineering department than on the line. And Unbelievably, the owner said, sure, start Monday. So I started working with an acquaintance of mine who was the chief engineer at the time, and I began designing wood furnaces and, you know, adapting them and so on. Lo and behold, uh, my boss, the chief engineer, quit after a year. And so one year and six weeks after I started, I became the chief engineer of a wood furnace factory. And this was, you know, 1979 or so, and as you may know, at that time, it was the wild west of wood burning. Things were really hopping. Hundreds and hundreds of, of companies uh, were starting up. If I may ask, did, did both your designs uh, that you made and what you were working on or what came out of your work at the, at the wood furnace manufacturer in 79, was this a step above the Ashley or was this, you know, how did it turn out your initial uh, forays into uh, stove and combustion design? Well, it turned out that the guy I was working for, uh, the chief engineer who, who I started with there, was a brilliant, brilliant designer. And together, he and I uh, came up with a surefire furnace which some of your listeners may have seen uh, back then. Uh, and they were a lovely thing for the time. They had a, a, you know, a Scandinavian horizontal baffle in them. They had preheated combustion air. All kinds of very advanced features that nobody saw at that point. Um, and they worked extremely well. We even you know, experimented with fiber refractories, combustion tunnels, all kinds of very exotic stuff for the time. Uh, so that by the time I left that company in 1980, late 1980, um, I was, well, the company had a staff of 110. I had a staff of seven. I was responsible for design, uh, engineering, research and development, quality control, the works, customer service. I had a big staff. And um, 
but I was overwhelmed. I was in over my head. I don't have an engineering degree. Um, and the other thing that happened, the important thing that happened was because of my position as the engineer for the company, I was invited to sit on the Canadian Standards Committee, Standards uh, uh, Committees for the installation code and the furnace um, safety test standard and so on. And I'm a kind of an odd duck in that respect because when I went to Toronto to attend those meetings, full-day meetings with 20 people sitting around the table, um, six or seven hours in a committee room, talking about, you know, minutiae, really. Uh, when I got into that environment, I said, wow, this is great. This ah. is really where it's at. <laughs> most people, and I thrived on it. Yeah, most people can't wait to get out of those meetings, right? That's right. I thrived on it because I understood at the time you know, anybody who was around at the time realized that it was just chaos out there. Nobody, there were no good rules. People didn't have good installation codes to go by. It was really very dangerous, and everybody was guessing. Um, and I realized that in these standards committee meetings, the rules were made. The foundations were being laid for wood burning, and I wanted to be a part of it. So I promptly quit my job uh, at the furnace company. And hung out a shingle as an engine, as a as a consultant, and began at that time initially writing public information materials for the federal government. Um, and you know the federal department um, that was dealing with energy issues at the time actually borrowed me within six or eight months from my consulting company, and plopped me into the public service in what they call an executive interchange program. It was a wonderful experience. So I actually experienced what it was like to be a bureaucrat, an energy bureaucrat, and in particular, a renewable energy bureaucrat. And this was all in 1981-82. It was a good experience. I don't think we have a lot of those. Uh, maybe the United States is too big. Uh, I mean, we have them under the – we have the code people and the lab people, but I don't, I don't know that the, that the government – Per se, gets as involved. Is it is it your experience that they do here in America, or it's just Canada being a little smaller and a little colder and a little more wood uh, able to do that? Well, here's here's what happened. It was a, it was a significant distinction between what occurred during that energy crisis in the '78 to '82 energy crisis in Canada compared to the U.S. In the U.S., uh, transportation energy was a huge crisis in the U.S. during that energy crisis. And I think the, the, the U.S. federal government invested heavily in transportation, energy conservation. In Canada, it was housing. Housing energy conservation loomed huge in Canada because of the high cost of oil and so on. And our federal government was giving away grants to get people to switch away from oil to anything else at the time. And so, you know, I basically walked into the federal government and said, I'm an energy specialist, and they just snatched my arm off and said, sit here, here's a phone, we'll work out the administrative details later, we need your services immediately. So it was one of those things. Um, it, it was a very good background. So I, I, so I did that, a number of contracts. Uh, 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 some of the work I did was under contract doing preliminary work for standards development. Way back then, we started what became the, the CSA B415 emission standard back in 81, 82. Way back then, uh, concerning ourselves with emissions and efficiency, uh, and I was hired under contract to do all the background documentation for the committee before they got started. So there was that kind of contract work 
and um, so there were, I was very busy as a consultant back then. And, and my lucky break, you mentioned um, my work in, in, in inventing chimneys and so on, which is probably what your colleague was referring to when they said they learned quite a bit from me. That got started in 1984, actually, when our housing agency, Federal Housing Agency, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, um, invited me to sit on a project advisory committee where they would have they would have consultants doing research work and then they would bring all kinds of people into a meeting uh, and have that consultant report on their findings and have that critiqued by this group and I was one of the group and what they were dealing with at that time was successful venting of atmospheric gas furnaces vented through B-Vent, which they were having terrible problems with backdrafting. And that was just an eye-opener. From those people and from that linkage with Canada Mortgage and Housing, I began to understand how chimneys work, which was a very budding field at the time. Nobody really knew how chimneys worked. Um, but I, I studied under one of their researchers who, interestingly enough, what made CMHC's research work unique, maybe worldwide, probably worldwide at the time, was that that agency had hired a guy out of the aerospace industry in Montreal, and he was a, a, a doctorate in um, uh, aerodynamics. And he applied his theoretical and practical knowledge in, in aerodynamics to chimneys. And that made all the difference, that perspective. And so I learned from this guy, and, um, and I continue to, to have a, a good relationship with the people at the research division at CMHC. But that's where all that got started, was way back in 1984, uh, in learning how chimneys function. And so 1984, now we're 20-something. Uh, you've you've uh, worked on that. You've studied it. You've refined it, and uh, I, and it continues. And, and at this point, uh, both you and the Canadian government and everybody else are are uh, putting this out into the field, uh, you know, as as documents and and to the trade also as uh, as teaching materials. Correct? Yes, exactly. And so, for example, I mean, a good example of how that all of that knowledge finds its way into the real world, so to speak, would be, for example, the um, you may be aware of the best practices for fireplace installation that the HP, HBBA, H... HPBA. HPBA has put out. Um, they have a document called Best Practices for Fireplace Installation. And all of the theory that I learned back then, reinforced by, you know, the sort of practical day-to-day knowledge of applying it, um, is embedded in that document. And there's many documents now circulating. The, uh, the training system in both Canada and the U.S. both reflect that knowledge nowadays. So it really has become uh, integrated with the people thinking about how chimneys work. Well, I, you know, I should tell our listeners that, uh, you know, I've met you at a number of different trade shows, and, and I, I'd say the difference between uh, my meetings with you and the meetings with most of the other people at the trade shows 
where the, you know, most of the people you meet, you're talking about customers, about sales, about, uh, you know, there's some gossip involved, there's things like that. But whenever I would see you, either, either you'd be in a booth or you'd be talking uh, somewhere or sitting behind something, uh, maybe signing up people for your next pamphlet or class or whatever, we would enter into a discussion about actual chimneys and actual real world stuff and uh, stuff that really not too many people in our industry spend enough time thinking and talking about so i I guess you know i could say that about a a, i could fit the number of people on my hand in terms of fingers that we usually have you know such serious discussions about uh about these you know physical factors rather than oh you know can we make more stoves and sell them cheaper or or whatever all the other factors happen to be yeah that's quite true that is quite I, i you know i i consider myself very lucky the sort of path I've taken because, well, I mean, suggesting that I took a path strategically, it would be a mistake. It was, you know, strictly by by accident that all this occurred. But, uh, you know, getting linked up with the, with the research division at CNHC and then the, the various linkages that I got from there uh, made all the difference. Well, of course, the venting is something that we're going to talk about in a, in a, in a... Uh, future interview in terms of of the details of it, and that's one of the big uh, culminations of your 20-something years. But uh, as I remember, there are some other things that you've written, uh, for instance, as simple as it seems about proper ways to burn wood and things like that that have been uh, passed through. I think some of these government agencies are printed. Is that that true, some some, uh, materials you've done for the Canadian government? Oh, yeah, a lot of that kind of thing. You know, one of the other interesting things that happened to me was, you know, 84, I got involved with CMHC, but in 85, I opened a wood stove store, <laughs> um, which would be a kind of a crazy thing to do for a consultant. But what was occurring was that in my own neighborhood, in my own county area, the houses burning down left, right, and center. Uh, every winter, somebody I knew's house would burn down, and I thought this was just terrible. And here, I was in a position to know how to help, but without any kind of instrument, you can't help, if you see what I mean. And so I felt the best thing I could do for my own community was open a wood stove store as a focal point for helping people burn, to burn wood more safely and more effectively. So I did that. Um, I opened the store. I, I, I First, I hired a very, very competent guy as a store manager because, by the way, my consulting business was still going on. So I hired a very good guy as a store manager, and it was those meetings that we had with the installers first thing in the morning uh, as to what strategy they were going to take for each and every installation and how we were going to address the problems of each particular house. And, of course, they're all very different. Every installation is different. It's got its own issues and problems. And I learned so much uh, simply because I had a wood stove store operating downstairs of where my consulting office was, and I was constantly uh, applying the knowledge I'd learned through CMHC in the real world with, so for example, the importance of inside chimneys versus outside chimneys, which is a classic uh, issue and problem that we've dealt with in the wood-burning area. And all of my knowledge, I could never have written, the, for example, 
at that point, at that very point when I opened the retail store, I had gotten a very, very large contract as a consultant to develop the Wood Energy Technical Training Program, which was the training and certification program for wood energy professionals in Canada. And I couldn't have written that from the sort of academic, hands-off, consultant view that I'd had up until then. I was only able to do that program properly because I had that experience on the retail floor, in people's basements, living rooms, and on their roofs. It was all of those combined experiences that allowed me to write the WET program. Interesting. I mean, I really, really understand that from the point of view of, you know, after we get to talking about some of these things in depth on hearth.com and in the forum, I'll, I'll usually throw up a post that says, you know what? This is rocket science. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds strange. People are like, oh, it's a wood stove. It's not rocket science or it's a pellet. Yeah, well, you know, actually, some of the rockets, they're all pre-manufactured. They work pretty good. You know, they've got all the sensors on them. And, uh, but but there, the variables, the number of variables there are in these situations, it's amazing how many there are. And, you know, that's what I think you – you mentioned you learn in the uh, in the stove store. I happened to sit in one myself for twenty something years, so learned a few things. <laughs> well, you know just what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, and and I'm sure you would agree. I look back on my career, and it's it's just about thirty years since I started in in manufacturing, and all those years I have been fully engaged. Um, every one of my faculties used to the to the maximum, not that I'm a very bright guy, and sometimes I think I'm pretty slow, but I have been fully engaged and interested deeply and learning steadily for 30 years in this business. And it is true that non-specialists often think of wood burning as a sort of a simple, almost a folk technology. And the reality is it has so many layers of meaning and context and depth it continues to surprise me, and it, 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 it still engages me today. Well, that's that's. I'm somewhat the same way, I, although I have had my periods of having too many, too much at certain points along the line. Probably has something to do with, you know, that I was involved in certain physical companies. I'd buy or sell a company, and I'd have too much of, of that. Or, or, you know, 20 years in retail, I, I tell people that's a career or a lifetime, <laughs> either way you want to, either way you want to look at it, which is you know, to my benefit, the reason that I started doing more computer work, consulting, and and ended up with Hearth.com. Um, I'd like to touch on a couple more subjects today, and then uh, we'll explore some of these more in depth later. But uh, uh, this way, at least, we can introduce our readers to some of the uh, other interesting subjects that we'll have in the future. And and one is. Um, the website and organization you started, which uh, is at woodheat.org? Yes. Uh, woodheat.org, which is a, as far as I can see from the outside, a, a nonprofit uh, website. Well, I'll let you explain the whole, uh, uh, the whole starting and the, and, and the effort of woodheat.org. Uh-huh. Well, you know, woodheat.org came about when my colleague and friend Cal Wallace and I were driving home from a from a, 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 a CSA standards committee meeting on the installation code, and we were lamenting the fact that all of the information uh, to the public about wood burning came either from manufacturer's literature, 
advertising literature and installation manuals, or from government publications, and of which there are very few anyway, uh, and that there was no agency that could provide uh, non-commercial, unbiased, not product-related advice to people. And we thought, boy, there must be something we can do. And the two of us were sort of, um, at that point, this is 1996, both of us were slightly changing our work. He had semi-retired, sold off three wood stove stores and so on. Um, and we had a bit of time on our hands, and our feeling was we wanted to give something back to the public, to the people who burn wood. And the way we went about doing it was simply to incorporate uh, the Wood Heat Organization, Incorporated, uh, and, and for it to make its, its presence felt in the form of a website. Uh, no advertising of any kind, no brand names mentioned, or only very, very rarely. And of course, we did have a stock of some basic stuff there because I've been writing for 20 years on the subject, and so I had some content that I could put up, and we simply built it from there. Um, and it's been a hugely rewarding uh, experience. I, <laughs> I haven't made a nickel on the whole thing, and I never intend to, but I continue to learn from the kinds of questions and dialogue and so on that occurs as a result of that website. It's been a terrific thing, and it makes me feel good because I get, you know, mail constantly about how valuable the site has been for average folks around the world. It's been a very rewarding experience. Oh, that, that's neat. You know, I like to look at things like that as uh, a couple things. First of all, it's sort of a brain dump. You know, it's like you're you're taking what went in over a number of years and you're dumping it out. You know, <laughs> so so people get you know get the result of of all the uh, experiences you've had. And you know, yeah. second, it's a it's a little stab at immortality. Uh, although you know, who knows? But you know, the nice thing about this stuff is it gets picked up by the internet archives, and hopefully you have good backups of your website so that if anything ever happens, uh, you know, somebody could get a hold of it and, and you know, put this stuff up so it, it doesn't all have to get ever thought up again and, and, and rewritten again. Mm -hmm. No, it, you know? no it, 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 there are intangible rewards there, and, uh, and, and for me, they're very, very valuable. I should tell you a little quick story about, about my own thinking, you know. It's a funny thing. For probably 20 years of my work, I almost refused to write any detail telling people um, exactly how to prepare their firewood or how to build a fire because I thought, oh, that'll just insult people. I just kind of assumed people knew. And then I started, I'm not sure what made me switch. I guess it was doing workshops and so on, uh, public workshops. I finally realized that people do find it of value for somebody who has some experience to give insider tips on the most detailed things. So that now, I've just, you know, in the last few years done quite a few public evening workshops on wood burning where you get between 50 and 300 people in an audience with a PowerPoint presentation and talk to them about wood burning. And I, without any shame <laughs> or hesitation, will tell people strategically how to place wood in a firebox, the size of the pieces, the orientation of the pieces, how to manage the coal bed, how to, you know, what tools to use in excruciating detail. 
And much to my surprise, people just love it. They just uh, yeah, I could conf- I could confirm that a hundred percent because you know the first article that I ever wrote, or, not for my website, for my store, as uh, just to give out the customers, was how to start a wood fire, uh, mm-hmm. f- followed by how to start a coal fire. <laughs> yeah. you know, and and we ended up publishing them in our little newsprint catalogs and everything because once you get asked the question a bunch of times. Uh, and of course, it, it, that happens to still be to this day one of the most popular articles on Hearth.com is how to start a wood fire. And then I followed it up with tending your wood fire. You know, just yeah. to, to to you know, once you get started. Uh, I even did a little video on one once. I haven't followed up from there, but yeah, I, I don't think you can assume that that any information is too, you know, too much of a beginner type because people are. People are just get. I mean, we see them every day on the forum. They're just getting stuff like, "What's a wood stove?" You know, "What's a, how efficient is it? How do you start it? How do you, you know, uh, it, it?" Because we've got whole new generations of people now starting to, you know, to buy and burn stoves. Sure, and 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 and, and what really was a revelation to me was that it is not just newcomers. Uh, it it. It, 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 I finally realized that it's very, very important for people who've been burning wood for 30 years, longer than me maybe, to hear some kind of confirmation of what they've been doing right all these years and so on. People love that sort of thing. So they don't, uh, they don't, as I always thought they would, resist anybody telling them how to burn wood because it is such an individual thing. But, you know, after one of these workshops that I did, and, and the other thing is, people will pick up on one little factoid that can make all the difference in the world. And a good example is that with some old grizzled buzzard from around here, you know, logger or whatever, been burning wood all his life, he's probably 15, 20 years older than me, told a colleague of mine in the next town over that he'd attended one of my workshops locally. And what he remembered from that workshop was that most firewood that is commercially supplied is too big. It hasn't been split enough. The pieces are too large. He re-split his wood smaller, and it completely changed his wood-burning experience. Wow. There's yeah. an example. Yeah, I mean, like one tip, like a, a, the type of tip uh, th- that might be that, oh, air that comes in up at the top of a window, you know, like a lot of these modern stoves, drops it across the glass. People a lot of times get a log stuck in the front. And, and it's a nice flat log, and it sticks right down to the, you know, right in the front at the bottom of the glass, and it cuts off all the air from the rest of the fire. So, That's so you right. know, sometimes you tell, you, you explain to them how that air goes in, and, and then it's like, oh wow, that's why every time I had a log there, the whole fire started smoldering, and you know, I couldn't get the heat going out of it. So then they'll, the like you're saying, how to set the wood, they might set two splits front to back to sort of act as a grate, you know, and then set the other logs on top of them. That's right. So the interesting thing to me is that, for one thing, everybody hears things a little bit differently during a workshop, and everybody brings to that workshop a completely different set of experiences. So you can never know what little fact it is that will resonate with any particular person, but all it takes is one for people to take home and apply, and that can trigger a whole cascade of changed practice that will result in no more smoke coming from their chimney, for example. 
no more smoky glass, no more backdrafting and that kind of thing. A, a happier wood burning. And, you know, that's why years ago some people used to tell us in our store, why do you care that all these junky stoves are being sold, you know, mail order or whatever and this? And we were like, well, because it gives stoves a bad name. And, and we looked at this overall picture of, well, that person might buy that stove and, you know, have such a bad experience that they're not going to buy another stove. You know, they're, they're exactly. just going to go a few years with that, and then they're going to tell their friends how dirty it is. And, and you know, there's a, a modern equivalent of that that we'll talk about in a in a future uh, future interview, which is the outdoor wood boilers and, you know, the, <laughs> the, the voluntary uh, emissions and, and, and such things. Um, one sure. other subject I wanted to, to touch on today is, is some of your other uh, hobbies and efforts related to uh, what we would call today the Green Revolution, but you started way before uh, it had such a name, and that is uh, uh, you're somewhat of an alternative energy buff, I hear. Well, yes, I am, but it's kind of interesting, you know, Craig, because back when I started, uh, you know, in the 70s and early 80s in the wood burning business. Um, I and my colleagues in retail, uh, and even to some extent in manufacturing, really identified with wood as a renewable energy resource, uh, with those allied energy renewables of solar and wind. We did not, I have never been a fireplace guy. I have never been a decorative guy. That's not been what motivated me ever. It's always been wood heat. I have very little interest in, in conventional fireplaces and the, and the wood flame as strictly and only a decorative element in a home. Uh, so I've always thought of myself as a renewable energy person with a specialty in wood burning. So I've always had collateral interest in solar and wind. And then, um, you know, we went through that period in the 90s when, when the interest in wood burning declined considerably and when gas fireplaces became much better, more, and, you know, better looking and more effective and so on. And um, wood was in serious decline uh, uh, as an energy source. And, you know, so I've always looked at oil and gas um, um, not as competitors so much, but as other factors uh, that influence the wood-burning world. And then, um, uh, you know, three things happened in 1998 that sort of converged and basically changed my life in a way and our whole household. One was, um, in, in around that time, my partner Wendy started to, to started work on her, uh, on her doctorate and she was uh, dealing with uh, rural communities, sustainable rural communities. Um, and she had an interest in renewable energy. Uh, <laughs> interesting, you know, we've always heated with wood and so on. And we have a number of friends who, who have off-grid homes, and they're generating electricity with solar and wind. So her work was played a part in this, and then... Uh, I had a year or so earlier begun to follow the energy resources at Yahoo Groups, a discussion board on the Internet and email exchange. And um, I, I was beginning to become fascinated by, by oil, uh, the global oil picture. And then in 1998, 
uh, an article was published in Scientific American called The End of Cheap Oil by uh, Colin Campbell and Jean Laharriere. And that was a watershed article. Um, and it still stands up today. It's an incredible piece of work from 1998. That really got me thinking about an energy crisis coming in the future. And then the third thing that happened that triggered everything was the ice storm in northeast U.S. and uh, eastern Canada, of which we were a part. We were without electricity for four days. We were not in the most hard-hit areas, but it certainly had a very big impact on us, both physically being out of power and so on, and psychologically, just because of the vulnerability one has to electrical supply. And so at that point, we began thinking about outfitting our house with, uh, or, or becoming independent with electricity and so on. And so in, starting in 2000, uh, I installed 800 watts of solar photovoltaic panels and put in batteries in my shop and an inverter to convert that power from the batteries to alternating current. And I began that process. Well, I should say we began because it's very much a household thing. And of course, it was, if Wendy hadn't been very engaged and interested, it, it, it could have been a fiasco. But as it turns out, luckily, she was every bit as behind it as me. Could have been a tough so, sell, you know, saying, uh, honey, you know, I want to put up a, a $50,000 windmill. Yeah. <laughs> I have now spent... I guess I've probably spent upwards of $60,000 on this system that now consists of a one-kilowatt wind turbine and the 800 watts of solar. We've got solar thermal panels to heat our domestic hot water in summer. We heat our domestic hot water with a wood stove in winter. Um, and the whole renewables thing has just been yet another wonderful education. It's just been terrific. And... Uh, you know, despite the, I mean, it really is a hobby in the sense that I never, ever expected to save any money. Uh, quite the opposite, really. We continue to pour money into the thing. But it is absolutely fascinating. And the interesting thing about it, really, is that Wendy's doctoral thesis is all about the social and community-level dimensions of renewable energy. That is to say, what does being off-grid mean to one's viewpoint, worldview, their relationship with their household and their community, and so on. And what she found was quite startling, really, that there is meaning in that question of independence, in, uh, in being responsible for not just the consumption of energy, but in its production within the household. It is a very, very meaningful activity that is endlessly engaging, very, very interesting, um, and it has its own really deep rewards. We've really enjoyed every part of it. Well, this sounds like the uh, the sort of conclusion that Baba Ram Das came to that said, uh, when you're all done everything, you chop wood and carry water. So, I mean, you're talking yeah. about it in a larger sense, but it's it, it all comes back to you know, uh, what a person does every day. And, and just interesting, in the New York Times magazine I was looking this morning, and I didn't read the article, but it's an article about the nationalization of oil, and it, it sort of makes the point that the worst countries in the world are the ones that have all the oil riches because they don't have the impetus to improve themselves. 
you know, if you compare those countries against all the other countries, all the other countries are the ones that are, you know, getting off their arse, so to speak, and, and, you know, getting the work. And, you know, looking at it in the family unit, they're the ones who say, let's all share the chores, let's do this, you know, let's let's conserve, let's use yes, less of this. But the ones, you know, that are that have all the oil, they're just getting, like, lottery payments. So it's like that thing where they follow all the lottery winners and, and they're finding out they're not happy either. Yes. Yeah, well, they, well it, you know, there have been books and articles written on how oil poisons the society in so many ways. I mean, the U.S. has had terrible, terrible problems with oil, it, just in terms of its environmental impact, its social impact. Canada is now in a real jackpot with these tar sands in Alberta. I mean, the, the environmental implications of that are absolutely terrifying. Um, some people look upon it as a, a gold rush. Uh, uh, other people look at it as a tragedy. So oil is a very mixed blessing, even though it is what drives everything these days in our society. Uh, by the way, I should mention to you, just while I mentioned the, you know, Wendy's thesis and so on, there's an excerpt from her, in, from her thesis on the Woodheat website under the heading Why, Why Heat with Wood. Um, it's one of the menu items there. Oh, neat, neat. Um, I'll take a look at that myself, and uh, hopefully a bunch of our listeners uh, will. Well, do it's one of her chapters, and what it is, it's quotes from the from many of the sixty families that she interviewed for the thesis, and it is absolutely remarkable. You can see it in the words uh, of actual people in these quotations how meaningful these renewables are to their daily life. Incredible, really wonderful. Well, you know, I have to somewhat liken it to the same thing, the feeling a person gets when they know how to fix their motorcycle, their car, their house, you know, even their hot tub, uh, their, you know, everything around them. It's just another uh, empowering on a personal level, uh, you know, which is tough to do today. Well, it is. It is, particularly when so many people earn their living as, you know, a dentist or a nurse or an accountant or something that is way distant from the practical mechanical requirements of daily living. So any sense of self-sufficiency, do-it-yourselfism, people just love that, and I know that's no exception. Well, it sounds like maybe we got to the core of, uh, of, of a wood burner's heart today, <laughs> if nothing else. Well, you know, I've taken enough of your time today, John, and uh, really educational stuff, and uh, I'd appreciate getting a chance to talk to you further in the future. Oh, that'd be great. I really enjoyed our little chat. It was great. That was great. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Greg.